Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this special episode, we'll look again at the state and financial health of the banking industry in the wake of the collapse and failures of Silicon Valley and other banks and the troubles at First Republic Bank. In the past few days, we also had another momentous and fast-moving financial event, UBS agreeing to buy its rival, Credit Suisse, for over $3 billion. Is the banking sector in deep trouble? Is it in a state of rot? And can we expect more trouble ahead? How strong are the US banks? And can we expect more of them to topple because of capital and other problems? Here to answer these questions and present his in-depth analysis is Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist and Bank Analyst at Odeon Capital Group. He's here with Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner, who raises some timely questions about rules and regulations and our current banking turmoil. Dick says some sections of the media are recklessly attempting to create a run on the banks. He will explain what he means and he'll also tell us what might be ahead for the banks. I'm here with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein and we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 61. As they say, a week is a long time in politics. It's certainly a long time in the financial markets. We're in a different place today than we were, I suppose, Dick, uh, last week when we were discussing the banking crisis. You say the banking crisis is over. We had the implosion of SVB, and then we had two other banks uh, before that had real deep problems. And during the week, we've had the issue, of course, of First Republic, which is in the crosshairs of regulators. We had UBS agreeing to buy rival Credit Suisse. Where are we right now, Dick, um, in the banking environment? How does it look? Well, I think it's pretty clear that, well, at least I think it's pretty clear that uh, the crisis uh, in terms of expecting a large uh, deposit outflows from the banking industry is over uh, and and that uh, we're not likely to see any major uh, announcements of any major bank uh, or a bank of any realistic size that uh, they're they're in financial uh, difficulty. So I I think that uh, that part of it is over. The part which has just begun is the part that relates to bank earnings, because as a result of what has occurred, uh, what we're seeing is, uh, number one, there's a slowdown in the growth of loans in the United States, which should continue as banks, you know, try to assess how much of their deposits are going to stay in place or not. Two, 
you know, the bank margins are being affected uh, because uh, the, the government is somehow going to get them to show what the mark to market is, uh, you know, of their securities in their earnings. Number three, uh, it would appear that loan losses, you know, will creep up. They, they are still well below average, well below normal, but they're going to ra- rise. Uh, number four, I think that uh, you'll see a big increase in the FDIC insurance premium that they have to pay. Uh, and I think that uh, you, you will see uh, demands on a number of banks to raise more common equity. So from from one perspective, are these banks going to go under? Is the, are we going to have a financial crisis similar to what we had in 2007, 8? I, I don't see that at all. Uh, and number two, you know, are the banks, you know, great investments because they're not going to crash I don't see that at all either. I think that uh, I think that you stick with the bank preferreds, as we said multiple times before, and uh, you, you be very careful about what bank you want to common stock you want to buy. Because you, you've made the point uh, repeatedly that banks are well capitalized; they're flush with nineteen trillion plus of deposits. They essentially bailed out the banks in the past week or so by putting money into the Fed. And this notion that uh, the banking sector is vulnerable to some kind of contagion—you don't just see that. No, and and the thing is that um, you know the United States government is uh, you know embarked on this massive PR campaign in which they said and, and and this morning it's all over the press also that the uh, united states government is uh, trying to think about how they would go about uh, ensuring all the deposits and all the banks in the united states and since that is impossible uh, the united states government does not have the money to do it the united states government is borrowing money to pay the interest on its debt you know, the, the Federal Reserve has only eight, only nine trillion dollars, uh, roughly speaking, in in assets. And as you just correctly noted, John, there's nineteen trillion dollars in deposits in the banking industry, so they don't have the money. And uh, the money in the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is laughable because they've got one hundred and twenty eight billion, or one point two two percent, I think, is the ratio of uh reserves against you know the roughly 10 trillion dollars I, th- I said 8 trillion last week but i think it's roughly 10 trillion dollars in insured deposits so you know they can't do what they're talking about doing uh they can pass all the bills they want they can jump up and down uh with janet yellen speaking and 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 powell and 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 uh, uh grunbach at, at the fdic speaking but the fact is they don't have the money and they can't do it what really backs you know the 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 deposits in the american banking industry are the assets of the american banking industry and the in the assets uh, are depending upon how you calculate them if you just take the raw numbers there is uh, 1 trillion more in if you will cash securities and loans in the banking system than there are deposits so it's covered if you do it the way the fdic does it it's two and a half trillion dollars in excess you know assets versus deposits in the banking system that's what banks that's what backs deposits and that's a realistic assumption that it will continue to back deposits and what is critically important and again this gets to something i heard on uh, television this morning which um can't believe these guys open their mouths when they don't know what they're talking about this guy is talking about setting up a bad bank for you know first republic well what would be in the bad bank in a bad bank you put all of the assets which are not going to pay you know you're putting the assets which have failed you the bad loans what would go in a bad bank of first republic since they don't have 
their, their bad loan uh, level is way below the norm, they would put treasury securities. How do you create a bad bank filled with treasury securities? Particularly since you know if you hold the treasury securities to maturity, you're going to get paid back 100%. But, but the, the point I'm making is they keep saying these things that have no sense, that make no reason because they don't understand banking. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand what's in the banking industry, and they can't stop talking. <laughs> That's a bad combination. I mean, is, is part of this just deflection? Because one of the reasons, and I'm, look, I'm naive when it comes to a lot of these banking archaic rules, but we're all catching up and reading that Silicon Valley apparently could buy 30-year treasuries and not have to post any collateral and put them in a hold-to-maturity account and not have to recognize the losses. And if those are the rules that the regulators set up, and then when those rules get used, you know, maybe in a, in a aggressive manner by Silicon Valley Bank, and then it blows up in their face and they have to be seized. Is this just the FDIC just punting on, or whoever set up the rules that allowed 30-year treasuries to be held that way? Because if they didn't have that rule that let Silicon Valley Bank do what they did, we wouldn't be in this situation. Am I, am I missing something? Well, the thing you're missing is the Federal Reserve is doing exactly what Silicon Valley Bank did, right? There's no difference between the, um, forget the loan part, uh, but there's no difference between the securities at the Federal Reserve uh, and the um, way that they fund those securities. In other words, you, you've got something close to $8 trillion worth of securities uh, that are owned by the Federal Reserve. 48% of them mature after 10 years, Okay. 10% of them mature after five years. So if you put those two numbers together, you know, you got close to 60% of the securities at the Federal Reserve, which mature after, you know, five years. How are they funding it? Well, you know, they got five trillion or so in, in, in uh, currency, if I remember the number correctly. Uh, but they, they're funding it with bank deposits, which are short term in, you know, in nature and by borrowing money in the, um, in the, the the reverse repo market, they got they they actually have close to two point six trillion in the repo market. Now that repo thing is the most important because that's the one that goes up and down. You know, whenever the Fed needs money, so so the net effect is that that you know we can argue that Fed, that uh, you know Silicon Valley banks you know CFO was incompetent. Uh, because he did not have the the appropriate risk adjustment measures. And I, all that is true. He, def he was definitely incompetent by not, you know, taking the, the proper risk hedging measures, and therefore the bank doesn't exist anymore. But you know, most banks in the United States do the same thing, and and at the same point in time, the Federal Reserve does the same thing. So you know, what was this? You know, total incompetence on the part of all the CFOs, all the boards of directors of uh, all the banks, of all the Federal Reserves. Uh, I'm sorry, of the Federal Reserve, or was it that, you know, nobody consciously expected to see this massive increase in interest rates in such a short period? Now, again, you are exactly correct. The risk managers at all of these banks are deficient in their duties when they don't when they don't hedge against 30-year treasuries. The Federal Reserve is deficient in its duty when it doesn't hedge against, uh, you know, 30-year treasuries. But everybody does it so it's very hard to pick out one guy and say he's worse than the others but what i'm saying is the regulations that allow them to own 30-year treasuries without hedges and and count it as as if it's perfectly 
fully par capital at all times. Then I guess their deposits noticed. Peter Thiel started telling people to leave and they had a bank run. I mean, I don't know how many banks could survive a publicly executed, do it on your iPhone, be out by 9 a.m. Monday morning bank run. Like if they didn't have the bank run and you know you didn't have the panic and no one noticed their balance sheet with their un- unrealized losses, the, you know, because at the end of the day, the the bank system is a confident system. Both both scenarios are right. If no one had run to take out their deposits, their deposits would have still been fine. It's when everyone runs to take out their deposits, the deposits become unfine. And so it's it's that collective herd mentality that you try to prevent. And all they did was follow the rules. I mean, everyone talks about how they're idiots and they're mismanagement. I, I get that. But when you're sitting there in a 0% interest rate environment, people are depositing tons of cash with you. You're a bank that doesn't have a lot of lending opportunities because all your customers are cash rich. And so you have to stretch to find yield. And the only yield at that time that you could find that was above 1% or whatever was the 30-year treasury. And and the rules were written in a way that basically motivated them to have that as long data as possible. And if you don't have a bank run, then we're not having this conversation. Right. And and you're correct. You're, you're exactly correct also that uh, the accounting rules for the banks are inappropriate. Um, you know, the fact that they're able to make a conscious decision as to whether they want to keep the securities that they own in a position where they have to be marked to market or put them in a position where they're not marked to market it makes no sense. I mean, it, there, there was a massive fight when this rule was put into effect a number of years ago because the banks didn't have to mark anything to market and the uh, and the regulators wanted them to start marking things to market. And this was the compromise solution. This compromise solution doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work because it allows the banks to show that they have common equity when they don't have common equity. And and you're also right about saying that if this wasn't uh, the digital age, you know, you could never have had a run on that bank, uh, you know, the way it occurred. Because in the old days, as as I think we've discussed, you know, in in, in the past, if you want to, you know, get your money out of a bank and and the money is paper, you got to drive to the bank and get the paper, you know, the dollar bills. Uh, today, if you want to get your money out of the bank, as you just correctly said, Matt, all you do is you hit your cell phone, bang, 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 and the money's out of the bank. But the point is, where does it go? You know, it can go to money market funds. They can use it to buy treasuries or they can put it into big New York banks. But if they do that, what does the money market funds do with it? What do the big New York banks do with it? What does the treasury do with it? They put it back in the banks. <laughs> so the money goes right back into the banking system. So it's not like it's running away from the banking system and it's never going to be seen again. I mean, do you think there's any credibility to an argument that as much as the Fed was supposedly, and by the way, I I, I, I want to highlight at least a little bit that we're talking about the Fed here, who is, it's not their job to be the FDIC. Um, the FDIC here kind of is, taking a second to, you know, playing second fiddle to the Fed, which is kind of ironic because it seems like a, a take under of the FDIC if the Fed's doing the, you know, the decision making on which banks survive and which banks don't survive. But if the Fed's getting involved, and I don't, I don't know if you noticed, I'm sure you did, that the Fed's balance sheet grew by about $300 billion last week, um, which is the first time it's really grown significantly since uh, they started selling selling positions in the middle of last year. The $300 billion, the governor, uh, Bowman said that that was to, it wasn't QE, um, it was to support market functioning. And when you hear the word to support market functioning, when they're talking about the treasury market, it starts making a little bit different sense because they were worried about was if 
if there is the bank run that everyone was scared about after Silicon Valley Bank failed, and you have bank runs all across the country for regional-sized banks, um, all of those banks are going to be selling treasuries at the exact same time, and there wouldn't be buyers. And so the only buyer would be the Fed. So the Fed may have looked at the treasury market as the real risk of having uh, collapse. And so by saving Silicon Valley Bank, they were in effect saving the treasury market and providing liquidity to the treasury market. And if that's the case, then what they're really admitting is we're kind of like Japan. We don't have a functioning treasury market. Well, yeah, first off, the uh, the FDIC could not handle what happened last week. All right. They don't have the money to do so. Uh, and they only are allowed to step in to a bank that they take over. So they were allowed to step into, you know, Signature Bank, into, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, but they didn't, they couldn't touch Silvergate because Silvergate just liquidated on its own. And they, did, they didn't touch First Republic because uh, First Republic was not, you know, was not in the same position as the two that went under. All right. So th they were out of the picture because A, they didn't have an obligation to take care of th this wider issue and because they didn't have the money to, even if they were under the obligation to. So then you go to the Fed. Did the Fed do anything to assist the situation? The answer is no, they did nothing. What happened was the the, the uh, banking system itself deposited $440 billion into the Fed. That's the reason that the Fed balance sheet went up. It went up because the banks put in $440 billion. What did the Fed do with that money? It has three methods in which it can lend to banks that are in trouble. It has the normal discount window. It has the uh, window for distressed banks. And it has this new facility that they created, uh, which they said they would put money into assist banks that were in trouble. But there's only $12 billion in that. So the Fed took the $440 billion that the, the banks gave the Fed, and it bought you know loans by, in essence, giving money to the banks that were in trouble. It gave $300 billion in money in that fashion. It still had another hundred, uh, if you will, $40 billion to play with because of the excess that they got from the, the bank deposits. And they reduced the size of their borrowings, of the Fed's borrowings. They reduced the size of the treasuries went down a tiny amount. The mortgage-backed securities went down a tiny amount, and they paid off something like $120 billion in reverse repo. So the, the, the salvation of the banking industry last week was not the Fed. It was the banking industry. And this whole theory that, that you know, people are going to take their money out of banks that are small and put it into the big banks in New York, and therefore the big banks in New York are in good shape and the small banks are going to go under, that... that People don't understand there's a correspondent banking system that was created back in the 1700s in the United States in which the big banks will give the money back to the small bank that is failing if they think the small bank is is being run reasonably. So that, you know, people may argue correctly that, sure, all this money is going to New York, you know, to be, to, to be safely handled, but the people in New York are putting it back into the regions, you know, to help the banks that may be in trouble. So... Again, we got this huge PR game the U.S. government is playing that we're, we're behind the banking industry. We're the ones that are going to take care of it so that you're not going to lose anything in your deposits when they haven't put up a dime. All they've done is put up their mouths and, you know, the banks are putting up all the money that is being used to save the banks, which means that the banking industry is not in trouble. 
because the banks are able to save the banks without using any money from the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, without using any money from the Federal Reserve, without using any money from the United States Treasury. They solve the problem on their own. But, you know, you, you turn on the television, you pick up a piece of news, you won't find that anywhere. You just won't because these people who are talking on television and who are writing these articles in the, in the news have no clue as how the banking industry in the United States operates. Of course, a lot of the, those deposits, the, the 19 trillion plus is COVID, um, COVID money in a sense. I mean, the, the, the government could make the argument, guys, we uh, sort of give you a lot of money during COVID. But um, the other uh, interesting thing that Matt was saying, this whole digital uh, run on the banks from last week. I, I'm fascinated by that because we wouldn't have seen this stick in an earlier generation, obviously. So people could withdraw their money over the weekends. Um, I did read a report, I don't know if you're aware of this, that there was one uh, customer of SVB um, was successful in withdrawing most of their funds and then on the last withdrawal, the system frozen them. So I'm wondering, is there any... Um, Will that ever become an issue, uh, an infrastructure issue that there's a digital run on banks in America in a worst case scenario and the system freezes up? Well, the system didn't freeze up. I mean, it freezes up when the FDIC takes over the bank, then the bank refuses to give you your money back. Um, it's now the FDIC's job to give you your money back. We just said earlier is correct, but I, I, let me adjust it a little bit. COVID did result in this huge increase in money in the banking system. But again, the government didn't put it there. The government borrowed close, borrowed four, four and a quarter trillion dollars from the open market, and it took that four and a quarter trillion dollars and put it into bank accounts. So the net effect is again, you know, we, we have this this belief that the government is there solving all of our problems, you know, taking care of all of the difficulties. When in fact, the government never put the money into the into those bank accounts. They were an agent because they borrowed it, took the money, shoved it into the bank accounts. The Federal Reserve never helped the banks last week. They took the money from the banks, acted as an agent, shoved it into the other banks. So, so the net effect is until we realize that this is a capitalist economy and that capitalism works, and it showed how, how impressively well it worked last week, you know, and we, we keep running to the fact that it's the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, or it's the government, the government, the government, when it isn't either the Fed or the government, you know, I got, a, I got an email this morning, you know, for, from one of my associates in which they said, the government may say they're going to guarantee all these deposits, but, you know, they're never going to have to, so it doesn't matter what they say. Well, it does matter. It matters because they're creating the illusion that the government and the Fed is doing something that they are not doing. The private sector is doing it. And, you know, since since our, our, our media refuses to indicate that the private sector is the ones that are doing these things, whether it's, you know, raising the COVID money or whether it's salvaging the banks that are in trouble, until the media starts explaining to the American public that's where it's coming from, the private sector. The private sector is doing it. You know, we'll continue to have this massive PR game, which which is a farce. 
I mean, Janet Yellen, you know, everybody says, well, Janet Yellen is going to speak today. Okay, who who is Janet Yellen? She is probably one of the most intelligent women on the planet. She uh, went to Brown University, which is the elite school of the Ivy League. I was in, I went to the Ivy League. Brown is the elite school. I didn't go. I went to Columbia, which was not the elite school. You know, she went, she, she went to Yale. She taught at Yale and Harvard. She was on a number of president's committee. But when you put her into the real world, she was the president of the San Francisco Fed when Wells Fargo was doing the things that were not very nice. She was the president of the San Francisco Fed when Countrywide Credit, you know, did the monstrous things which led to the problems which almost bankrupted Bank of America. She was at the San Francisco Fed as as a as a I don't know a trusted advisor or what have you when some of the biggest SNLs in the United States went bankrupt. She comes to the Fed and she's there when they do this quantitative easing, which which resulted ultimately in this massive increase in money supply and the increase in inflation. She's an academic genius. She's an, an operations bust. You know, and everybody <laughs> wants to listen to what Janet Yellen has to say at the Treasury. And she flip-flopped at the Treasury concerning, you know, you know, whether the deficit is good or the deficit is bad or whether it's going up or going down because the president, you know, introduced a bill which increased the deficit. So our, our total reliance on government is just mind-blowing, and it's wrong because it's not the government, the private sector. I, I have a different take, and maybe it's because I'm not understanding fully what you're what you're saying, but what you have with Silicon Valley Bank is it's been seized. It's owned, I guess, by the FDIC right now, right. and supposedly they're trying to find a buyer, but from what I can gather, it's taken a historically long time to find a buyer. So how is the private sector stepping in on Silicon Valley Bank? It seems to me that it's running kind of the way the FDIC wants it to. And then my second point, and I guess this is more broad. Well, let let's stop on the first point. Sure, sure. Go ahead. Where's, where's the money coming from from the FDIC to take over this bank? The insurance money that banks pay. From the banking industry. Yeah. Not coming from the government. The government didn't put a dime in to the FDIC. So, so we can put you on Team Biden that no taxpayer money is being used to prop up the banking system. They did not. They did. It hasn't been. You know, I mean, you know, it may be it someday, but I'm just enjoying putting you on Team Biden. But I'm <laughs> um, I don't want to be in that. <laughs> my, my second point, though, my second question is again, you're right. I have no basis to trust the media. I, I think they're wrong. I, I think you have to assume they're they're wrong. But then, you know, that's where you get your information. And, and for some reason, you forget that they're always wrong and you tend to believe them. It, it sure seems like the FDIC and the Fed and Secretary Yellen are digging really deep to find just the tiniest thread of authority to do this apparent, un, you know, raising the insurance cap. And you see people on TV, both Democrats and Republicans, Senator Warren to Senator Rand Paul, you know, from Matt Gates to to um, uh, Stefanik, not Stefanik, the, the uh, Stolnik, the, the congresswoman from Michigan, you know, Democrats and Republicans talking about how they're against the FDIC doing unlimited guarantees because it feels like privatizing profits and socializing losses and yet they're digging deep to find this authority. You know, like we have a system. The system was passed by Congress. The Congress said 250 grand. And and that was raised from 100 grand. 
um, they made a conscious decision as to rate to raise it to that level. And then you have a banking crisis, and all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, well, I found this provision in this law from you know 1991 that lets us, under emergency authority, declare the small regional bank systematically important." And by the way, while we're doing that, we're going to insure everyone's deposits anyway. So don't worry about a thing. We're just doing this. It doesn't matter because. Well, I'm Janet, you know, we can because we have this this fig leaf that we're using. Like, would, do you have a view that the system would be better if it worked the way Congress designed and banks were no, Absolutely. I'm totally against what, what Congress is attempting to do. Number one, it is socializing, you know, the whole banking system, which is, you know, pretty socialized already. But the point is, they should never, ever, under any conditions, guarantee all the deposits in the American banking system. That is, you know, an opening shot to banks to take whatever risk they want about anything that they do. Uh, and, and it would result in, in massive, you know, real bank problems, which is when you get bad loans. That's the real bank problem. So so the net effect is it, it is the wrong thing to do. Uh, and again, it'll never pass anywhere ever. And, you know, again, it takes your eye off the ball. The ball is not the federal government, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC. The ball is the private banking industry. And the private banking industry is handling its problems on its own, you know, you know whether it's through the FDIC, through the Federal Reserve, or through providing loans to the government, because the, Fed, the banking system is the biggest buyer of, of treasuries uh, in, in the countries. So, you know, outside of the Fed, not, you know, so, so the net effect is the, the point is the, the banking system can handle the banking system's problems. And I think it's showing that in spades at the present time. But, you know, who is saying that? No one. Who is looking at the numbers? Who is saying, where is the dollars coming from that the Fed can do get $300 billion to all these troubled banks? Where is the money coming from that, that the FDIC can, and I'm making a speech here, that the FDIC can, uh, you know, t take over, you know, Signature Bank or, or, or uh, Silicon Valley Bank or whomever they want to take. That, that money is coming from the banking system. It is not coming from the government. It is not coming from the Federal Reserve. It's not coming from the FDIC in, in terms of direct you know using their own money so why can't they talk about that why can't they talk about the fact that the banking system solved its own problems and that we don't need the government to step in and it is wrong for the government to step in and if the government steps in in the fashion you just described we're setting up a banking system for failure because we're taking away all of the risk accountability in the banking system if we guarantee all the deposits of the banking system You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group with this special episode on the banking crisis. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Questions and comments? Email podcast at odeoncap.com. That's podcast at odeoncap.com. Uh, Dick, you, you mentioned uh, that you could see the FDIC insurance rising to one million. If I heard you correctly, no, no, they've got 128 billion. All right. What I'm saying is that they charge a premium to banks. All right. The money, the the, the money that goes into the FDIC is a an insurance premium which is paid by the banks, less the cost of running the FDIC. That's the reserves that the FDIC has, right? No, I, I was referring to deposit insurance for customers. It's two hundred and fifty thousand now. Do you see that yeah. rising further? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when, when you get finished with this big discussion, the government wants to show that it's going to do something, they'll probably increase it to a half a billion, half a million, and, and, and or, or maybe larger than that. Yep. But more importantly, they will go out to the banks and say, you know, your premium was XYZ, your premium is now significantly higher. And the biggest banks will pay a bigger increase of the premium than the small banks. I mean, if the small banks pay 2%, the big banks will pay 5%. Anyway, the point is, again, the banking system will be asked to come up with the money to solve the problems for the banking system. I want to pick you up on something you said last week, and I want to mention uh, a report out this morning, and it's by a media person and your take. You, you mentioned that uh, maybe banks that could be vulnerable were maybe some of the smaller community banks because of their deposit base and, I guess, interest rate sensitivity. Charlie Gasparino this morning or in the past 24 hours put out a column saying that he was talking to top financial executives who have privately identified as many as 25 regional and mid-sized banks in the neighborhood of 15 billion to 200 billion in assets that are ripe for failure. And then he went on to say the ill-fated Silicon Valley signature banks. And today, today's latest headache, First Republic, are the festering sores that signal an even greater degree of banking rot. Well, I mean, I think that isn't that exactly what I'm saying? You got some guy who's who uh, is known for being uh, strident and, and attempting to create uh, headlines, getting out there and making these statements without having any clue as to what the real numbers are, because he didn't check. And where is he getting the information? He's getting from the information from banking executives who'd love to see these smaller banks go under so they could get the uh, deposits and the, the loans that are in that smaller banks. And of course, you know, the American public is supposed to accept, you know, this, this unverified series of statements, whether by him or whomever he was speaking with, as being uh, correct in, in, about what the status of the American banking system is. If they were remotely correct, why haven't they failed all right in other words why don't they fail because they don't look at the other side of the balance sheet you know they may say well these banks have got all the stuff that they didn't mark down but they got all these loans which are paying interest and they even the stuff they marked down is paying interest and if the stuff that the loans are paying interest and the stuff that they didn't mark down is paying interest it's paying all the interest on the deposits and why should i take my money out of a bank that's paying me the the, the interest on my uh, deposits well i'll take it out because they're not paying me enough interest and the banks are going to have to rectify that very very quickly but the point is that um, that's that's what I mean. People get up and they, they shoot off their mouths. They write things in the newspapers. They get on television. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. They never want to check any of the figures behind what they're saying. They just say this stuff. They try and create runs on the banking industry. And that's the other point. Where is the United States banking regulators in, in looking at the laws of the nation? In 1861 and 1863, we passed the National Banking Acts, right, uh, to fund the Civil War. In 1871, we passed the Coinage Act because of this massive fight over gold versus uh, silver. Uh, in, in both, in all these laws, in my, if my understanding is correct, because I haven't looked at the thing for, since, since uh, you know, the last hundred years, but I mean, if my, my sense is correct, it's illegal 
for the press to do what it's doing. It's illegal for Peter Thiel to do what he did. It's illegal to create a run on a bank. It is getting up in a crowded theater and shouting fire. What are you doing? You're taking money from the local community. You're taking money from their businesses. You're taking money, you know, that funded, you know, the the who knows whose mortgage, who knows whose kid's student loan, who knows what kid's uh, car. You're taking away the, the cash management system. You're, you're, you're making that community less, you know, less able to expand. You're creating a vulnerability. Now, the fact of the matter is that's why the law was passed. In 1917, the state of California passed a law saying that it is illegal, a criminal act, to uh, basically for, to cause a run on a bank. Now, that law was brought to the courts, and, and the courts struck down the law. But most states in the United States have laws which say you cannot create runs on banks because it is, again, to use the analogy, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Everybody's doing it now. And nobody's saying anything about it. I mean, what, you know, back back in the day, you had a guy named Henry Gonzalez, who was the uh, representative from Texas who ran the House Banking Committee. That guy was a tyrant in terms of uh, calling the banks to order to, to operate properly, calling the regulators to order. Rand Paul may be, you know, kind of way uh, right to even his son, you know, uh, who, who's a he, he was a representative from Texas. His son is a senator from South, what is it, Kentucky, right? Kentucky, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. the point is, he was constantly doing this. Wilbur Mills, who, who you know, was from Arkansas, and he was a head of the House Ways and Main Committee. They were all doing this stuff. They all had themselves focused on the, the excesses that could develop in this industry. They didn't always succeed in what they were looking for. Do you hear anything from Elizabeth Warren, which is relevant? No. Do, do, do you hear anything from Maxine Waters or from, uh, you know, uh, this guy, um, forget his name, the, the head of Brown, uh, Sherrod Brown, who's the head of the Senate committee? No, you don't hear a word. You know, yeah, I, That's a little bit unfair. I love when you put me into the position of defending these people that, you know, are only in, in the positions they are because they, they faked their heritage for their entire lifetime. But um, Elizabeth Warren has been out there really loudly and proudly saying that the Congress should step in and 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 fix the FDIC laws um, and raise the and raise the cap and not let it fall to Janet Yellen to invent some thinly veiled connection to some bill from 2000 that lets her do it unilaterally. I mean, I, I think I think and Sherrod Brown has also been out there talking about how they should talk, you know, should should assess mark to market rules on held to maturity type bonds and make sure they understand the regulations there. I, I, I think there are people out there talking. Um, the problem with our system is you need, you know, the House, the Senate and and the president to all align at the same time and, and agree on, on a path forward. And because that rarely happens, um, you're left with with the, the emergency measures. Can I just ask thematically then, you're you're broadly saying that the banking system is fine, that Silicon Valley was unique because of basically the bank run they you know the probably you know all the things we're saying about them would still be true without the bank run but if you didn't have the bank run we wouldn't have had the collapse so broadly the banking system is fine do you think because you see a lot of other people pundits out there saying that this is the fed they're going to raise interest rates until they break something and they broke something they broke a bank do you think they pause now i, I think that uh the banking system in the United States is fine. Okay. I think that uh, the situation at uh, Silicon Valley Bank was a unique situation in First Republic. 
is tied to Silicon Valley Bank, and they're both tied to Silvergate Bank, uh, you know, and they're tied to, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who have invested in, you know, what was a crypto bank. But the point is, uh, in terms of, uh, is there, everybody's saying there is some rot somewhere in the system, which we don't know that's going to come up and bite us. They're, they're saying that the, the, the banking system is not fine. They're saying that something has to be done by Congress or someone to take correct something. They, they're not specifying what's wrong. They're not telling me, telling us why th th this thing has to be done. The banking system is fine. It is in great condition from a, a balance sheet standpoint. It is in, you know, weak condition in terms of an earnings standpoint for, for 2023. But in 2024 and 2025, if this broader theory that, that we keep talking about, which is the reindustrialization of America, banking system will look unbelievably good. I would just pick up on that, uh, Dick. Um, we have record uh, consumer debt in America at the end of 2022, um, 16.9 trillion, and delinquencies are on the rise. There's an increase in mortgage loan delinquencies of 90 days or more, <clears throat> and total bankruptcy filings rose 19% in January, and I think the overall numbers are just massive. I mean, that somehow must play into the banking sector if consumers are starting to feel more squeezed and maybe one more interest rate rise on the horizon well, well yeah i mean if you go into a recession loan losses are going to go up right and and the consumers are always going to be at the brunt of of where the biggest loan losses are as as a group i mean individual companies will do more than consumers the question is if 95 percent of the people in the united states pay their debt in bad times which they do the fact that it goes from a half of 1% to 2% to 3%, you know, who are not paying at the present time, is is that something to get, you know, freaked out about? I don't think so. I think that, you know, instead of talking all the time about how many people aren't paying their loans, people uh, should start talking about how many people are paying their loans. And, and again, the American people are good people. They pay their debts. You know, they pay their debts to the banking system. They have always attempted to pay their debts to the banking system as long as they get the money to do so. And until we run into a recession and, and huge job losses or changes in, in uh, inflation, which wipes out real income, you know, they have the money to pay their debts. They're paying their debts. And even though there will be a significant increase in loan losses over the next year, I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's not going to ruin the American banking system. It's it's the, the American banking system is in good shape because the American consumer pays his or her debts. That's the core. You know, if they pay their debts, the system will do fine. They are paying the debts. The system is doing fine. There is excess cash in the system, and that we should not be f worried about any major collapse or problem coming from that coming from that side. And in terms of, you know, these these legislators who, after the fact, are now saying what they should do, you know, to give you a difference between Henry Gonzalez and, the, and these guys uh, or ladies, uh, you know, Henry Gonzalez would take a look at the increase in interest rates, and then he would take a look at what the banks are paying to borrowers, and then he would have, uh, you know, a fit, all right? So what, what happened in the last, you know, couple of years in which each one of these legislators kept their mouth shut? Number one, interest rates went up we'll say by 5%, 4%. The banks gave 25% of that increase in interest rate to the depositors. The other 75% 75 they put in their pocket. 
the banks, you know, if you look at the earnings of the banking industry the way I do, you know, which is pre-tax income minus the loan loss provision plus the loan losses, the banks made $330 billion as an industry in, in 2022. You know, I mean, the banks made a lot of money. They got a windfall gain. They didn't give it to depositors. And the people who were most attuned to that fact were not the politicians like Henry Gonzalez, who died a long time ago. It's the American public. They took their money out of the bank. They took they they have pulled six percent of the deposits of the banking industry out. Uh, and they took it out because the banks refused to pay them any part of the increase in interest rates which the banks were benefiting from. I, I did ask my question earlier. Do you do you think that this is enough to get the Fed to pause or are they going to raise interest rates tomorrow? Today is that- I, I think that I think the the Fed, the position the Fed is in is if they do not raise interest rates tomorrow, you're going to get seven thousand statements from pundits, you know, who are going to say they didn't raise interest rates because they're worried about the banking industry. So I think similar to the European Central Bank, they're in a position where they've got to raise interest rates by twenty five basis points and then walk away from this program uh, because the way which is what they did in Europe, simply to say no, there isn't a crisis. You know, we're not we're not in a situation that we can't handle. We still want to fight inflation and therefore, you know, up 25. But then I don't think they're going to raise it anymore. I think that we've reached, the, you know, the peak because of the banking crisis, uh, you know, that has been created. And, and therefore, I, I'm betting tomorrow it goes up 25. And I'm betting that the, the verbiage will indicate that it's not going to go up after that. But then that brings up Matt's point previously that you have to rise above the rate of inflation to bring inflation down. In terms of interest rates, right? I mean, will inflation then stick around a lot longer? Well, again, I, I take the monitor's point of view, which is, you know, if you're shrinking the money supply, you're going to shrink inflation. So Matt is going to be right. The the, the, the rate of inflation is going to shrink below the interest rates uh, because you can't shrink the money supply and expect prices to go up. You're basically saying, just my layman's version of it is, they're going to raise interest rates as a just to prove to the market they're not scared but at the end of the day they're ending this program because they've now broken something that's time to try a different tack to get inflation under control which is maybe yield curve control or some other method yeah exactly that's exactly what i'm saying you said it better (laughs) dick any thoughts about ubs agreeing to buy its rival credit suisse did it shock you surprise you you've covered both banks it, it didn't shock me that they bought them because, you know, as we said on this podcast for a number of times now, uh, the Swiss would never let Credit Suisse go under, right? They just wouldn't let it happen. What shocked me, and which I think is totally inappropriate and wrong, is the way they bought it. Uh, because they uh, indicated that uh, what they call these AT1 uh, debt securities would not be paid, but the common shareholder would be paid. All right. Now that's just wrong i mean you common shareholders bear the risk of an organization the debt holders you know are lending money to the organization and they deserve to be paid first if if there are any assets available for payment and then you know if something is left you give it to the common shareholders what the swiss have done is they've turned that rule upside down and as a result of having turned the rule upside down you know every bank in europe that was using these at1s as one method of uh, you know funding their their balance sheets you know are finding that they can't do it anymore because they, they, if the, the Germans and the French and the Italians can all do what the Swiss did. So I think 
that the uh, National Bank of Switzerland, which is their Federal Reserve, is is going to be sued, you know, for this thing. I think UBS is going to be sued. I think uh, the old uh, entity Credit Suisse is going to be sued. I think the lawsuits that are going to hit on this uh, particular announcement are phenomenal because, you know, the gift to UBS here is enormous. I mean, the Saudi Arabians must be jumping through their skin uh, over what's going on uh, because they put, you know, uh, you know, a huge amount of money into Credit Suisse. So they they did what they had to do, but they did it in a fashion which is totally incorrect, inappropriate, wrong. Everybody's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've read a lot of analysis on the AT1s, and two things I've heard commonly or read commonly is, one, these AT1s at uh, Credit Suisse are extremely unique um, in that they have it directly written into their prospectus that it's basically lower than the equity, and they treat it like debt for some reason, and uh, you know people are waking up to that fact that they didn't read the prospectus carefully because apparently this is not legal or not written into the prospectuses of other European AT1-type bonds. And the second thing I would say is a $3 billion exit for a bank that was, you know, it's basically a startup. I think it started in 1856. They got a $3 billion exit round. That's kind of congratulations to them. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, you know, most AT1s, and, you, you know, I, I, you know, obviously I've read what you've read about uh, the fact that uh, they, don't, they don't have to be uh, converted, but they're called convertible you know, for a reason, because they're supposed to automatically convert into common stock when they can't pay their dividends. In other words, the whole concept uh, that in 2008, you know, led to the creation of the AT1, because it didn't exist before then, uh, was that uh, we want we want a security in the bank where uh, it will, if, if it can't, if the bank runs into trouble and it can't make the dividend or interest payments on that security, it automatically con converts to common stock and the banks can't stop that from happening, nor can the holders of the debt stop it from happening. Now, this new wrinkle, uh, I guess, that it came into the new AT1s is exactly what uh, exactly what Matt said. You know, they're saying that, uh, you know, they don't have to pay them and they don't have to convert them, even though they're still called convertible securities. So, so the Credit Suisse and UBS are now basically... I, I know it's not your expertise, but from the from the outside looking in, it looks like the Swiss government is basically a one bank town, and you know the UBS credit spreads widen quite a bit on the basis of this announcement. Like, is is Switzerland a country that we should be worried about, or do you think they're totally fine? No, no, you're right. It's a one bank town. I mean, uh, basically, my understanding was that, and the number the number keeps jumping around, but but my understanding was that those two banks had somewhere between forty and sixty percent of all of the Swiss all of the deposits in Swiss banks in in the country of Switzerland. If that's true, you know, you got one bank, you know, and all the other banks, you know, may be serving you know Arabs and Russians and other people, although UBS and Credit Suisse are probably at the top of the list doing that also. But the point is, you know, uh, yeah, you, you, I, I don't know anything about Switzerland other than it's a, an export economy. Uh, it's, uh, you know, composed of very wealthy people and it has a banking system which sucks in money from all over the world. Uh, you know, they're all over China, you know, grabbing money, for example. Uh, their the, the whole theory uh, is, you know, don't go after old wealth in China, go after new wealth because new wealth doesn't have a banking relationship and it's worked, it's worked beautifully for them. So so the fact is that uh, it, it's now devolved down to one bank and and that's that that is not good yeah it's kind of scary 
Yeah. The country that used to be known for one, the healthy banking system, but two, the diversity of the healthy banking system is basically reduced to one bank. And, you know, I, I don't know much about Switzerland, but I believe their currency, they try to peg it to the euro. They try to be attached to the euro, but they're not a member of the eurozone. And then I don't think they're a member of the EU either. And so, you know, they used to be this like island of stability. And it's kind of interesting to start yeah. starting to feel like they're not anymore. Well, it's almost like a safe haven and uh, also shrouded in a lot of secrecy, right? Their uh, banking yeah, system. Yeah. Well, you watch James Bond movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do they do when they show, right? Well, Credit Suisse is the bank in the James Bond movies. Well, well i got to go know, back and watch that all you know, over the in, weekend. In, in theory, you know, obviously it's not Credit Suisse, but, uh, you know, Credit Suisse dealt with anyone, anywhere, for any reason. And uh, that's what brought them to their knees. Well, we're out of time, Dick and Matt. Um, this time next week, we'll know and be able to discuss the outcome of the Fed's uh, two-day meeting on interest rates. That should be really interesting. And we'll talk about the banking sector again, I'm sure, Dick and Thank you for those insights earlier, Dick. And for our listeners, it's important to understand that as of today's recording date, March 21st, 2023, neither Dick nor any member of his household have a financial interest in the debt or equity or preferred securities of any of the banks and companies referred to on this podcast and have not received any compensation from these banks and companies in the past 12 months. In addition, Odeon has not received any compensation from these banks and companies and these banks and companies are not investment banking clients of the firm. Dick's written reports on any of these banks and companies he covers are available to institutional customers of Odeon at insight.odeoncap.com and additional important disclosures are available to the public generally at odeoncap.com forward slash legal under the research disclosures tab. All investing involves risk and you should consider those risks and your personal financial objectives before making investment decisions. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.